0: Votes that are partisan are going to be reliant on traffic jams, delayed airplanes, the illnesses of members of Congress. This is so razor thin, and it is just compounding the dysfunction at the House of Representatives.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, February 13. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about the closely watched special congressional election going down tonight in New York. It's the seat left open by Republican George Santos, who was chased out of Congress, but it also happens to be a swing district and a Democratic win there could cut into the already paper-thin GOP majority in the House. And later, Eric Gardner joins Ben to talk about the unusual legal strategy behind Gina Carano's lawsuit against Disney and why it's being bankrolled by Elon Musk. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Visit wwwsleepsleepme slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. It's February 13th. If you're a dude listening out there and you're trying to find a restaurant reservation for tomorrow night, just stop. Just give up. You're only gonna get that like 5.30 table. Or maybe like a fixed price menu that'll cost you an arm and a leg. Just don't cook. Do something romantic at home. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk politics. Abby, how are you?
0: I am great. How are you, Peter?
1: I'm good. Hey, I want to talk to you about what's happening in Congress because you and I haven't had a chance to catch up since the mayhem of last week. (laughs) The failed impeachment vote, the immigration bill, Mike Johnson's uh, current status. But before getting into all of that, RFK Jr., his Super PAC at least, ran an ad during the Super Bowl late in the first half. I thought it was pretty good, actually. Kind of came out of nowhere and, and was a little bit of a surprise. His family obviously didn't like it. <laughs> they said it uh, you know, ripped off a JFK campaign ad from 1960, and RFK Jr. and his family have been feuding over vaccines, et cetera, like the family sort of excommunicated him, actually. But I don't know. I'm curious. Just, you know, put on your political hat. What did you think about it? I assume you saw it when it came on.
0: Oh, I love all things Kennedy criminology. So I am here for this. (laughs) Um, What struck me as interesting was the inciting incident, or at least what it seemed like made some of them step forward, was the inclusion of a photo of Eunice Kennedy, Uh, John Kennedy's favorite sister. And so Eunice's children, the Shriver branch, came out with a tweet from Bobby Shriver that was retweeted. And what it struck me as fascinating is I've wondered since this started and has continued to get traction, is there a point where we have a direct-to-TV ad with a bunch of Kennedys? And if that happens, what I thought was really kind of fascinating was I kind of thought about it. And of this next generation, there are only two who are really nationally famous. And one is currently a diplomat, Caroline Kennedy. And the other is Maria Shriver, who retweeted her brother. She was an NBC network news star, um, former first lady of California. And it was just their reaction. And I just kind of wondered, like, is there a point where the Kennedy family feels obligated that they've got to get out there more than they have, which has been a series of statements and things like that?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I remember when Kennedy was running in the Democratic primary, A few of them put out statements and then Jack Schlossberg, who's JFK's grandson, kind of a liberal heartthrob, came out and did like an Instagram story, basically like disowning RFK Jr. and warning people not to vote for him. But yeah, I can see that happening. I can totally see that happening because I don't, I mean, this ad is kind of the opening gun. We'll see if he gets on ballots. He's only on the ballot in Utah and he still uh, has to collect a bunch of signatures to get on ballots elsewhere. But I mean, in terms of name ID and brand awareness. Like I thought it was actually a pretty smart investment. I mean, it costs $7 million to run a 30 second ad, but you know, well over a hundred million people were watching. And most of those people, you know, aren't following the election very closely. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a Kennedy on, on camera an independent. Uh, and perhaps that made people think about having another option besides Biden and Trump. And so Third-party candidates typically fade down the stretch. Um, you know, they they underperform where they poll, but I don't think Kennedy's going to get less famous <laughs> as the year goes on. Um, so I think I think that's a smart take on your part. Hey, there is a special election in New York tonight. In New York's third district, this is the race to replace George Santos. The Democratic nominee is Tom Suozzi, who used to represent New York's third district. The Republican is Maisie Pillip. Lots of outside money going into this race. Swingy district. Obviously, the Santos storyline makes it something people are paying attention to. I was watching CNN earlier, and they like doing special coverage of this of this race. And look, because the Republican majority in the House is so wafer-thin this race matters a lot. Is it is it a total jump ball tonight?
0: I think most operatives I've spoken with will tell me that the polling they're seeing privately is within the margin of error. I think the gut instinct of a lot of people is Democrats probably win this seat based on the early vote, based on how much they're outspending Republicans almost two to one on or more than two to one on uh, television um, and the strength of Swazi's candidacy. But you know, Long Island has not been friendly territory for the Democrats. This has been a really tough area that seems to be trending away. So I think that's the sort of the if you put people on truth serum, they would say Democrats, but they they won't say it publicly.
1: So say Swazi wins tonight. What does that mean for the makeup of the House? And on top of that, after last week, it feels like Mike Johnson lost some sway. He, he kind of blew it on the Mayorkas impeachment vote for one. So say Swazi wins, what does that mean for the Republican caucus?
0: It means Mike Johnson's life is going to be a lot harder, at least through later in the spring when Kevin McCarthy's seat is filled. This margin is no joke. The impeachment vote failed on the floor um, and it failed because Republicans assumed that a Democrat who was hospitalized was not going to come into the vote. And I think that's what this means. I I mean, it would be a catastrophic type situation for Democrats to take back the majority. Um, Mm. But I think what it in reality means is there is, Votes that are partisan are going to be reliant on traffic jams, delayed airplanes, the illnesses of members of Congress. This is so razor thin, and it is just compounding the dysfunction at the House of Representatives.
1: So what what is Mike Johnson's status with members of his caucus right now? Because last week was pretty embarrassing for him.
0: I think there's a Real, I think there is an understanding he is a new speaker and has a lot to learn. Mm. Um, I think there is also a very clear understanding that this is an ungovernable conference, um, <laughs> that if Kevin McCarthy with all of his, I mean, Kevin McCarthy was waiting more than 10 years for this job and preparing for it. And um, if he's not able to manage this, I, I think we're coming to terms with the fact that uh This was always an ungovernable conference and Kevin McCarthy has his flaws, but this this is just impossible for anyone.
1: It does not sound fun. That's for sure. Abby, thank you for joining me as always.
0: Thanks for having me, Peter.
1: When we come back, Eric Gardner is here to talk about an unusual lawsuit against Disney.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, here with Eric Gardner to talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects, entertainment law, and also friend of Puck, Elon Musk. Eric, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So we got to talk about this Gina Carano case and her lawsuit against Disney for people who don't know, Gina had a sort of medium-ish size role on The Mandalorian. That's one of Disney Plus's Star Wars shows, uh, probably the, the best of those new shows they've launched. And I think at one point she was even expected to get her own spin-off series before she went and tweeted a couple unsavory things that got her unceremoniously fired. She has filed a wrongful termination suit that is superficially about free speech, or at least that's how it's being characterized by people who are rallying to her defense. But you've been diving into the legal theory here pretty deeply. And you think there's a lot more happening beneath the surface, um, including the fact that this is a case that is now being bankrolled by Elon Musk. So talk to me about your read on this Carano lawsuit. And and why do you think there's more here than meets the eye?
3: Yeah, I think it's a a couple of things. Number one, uh, she's actually asserting a pretty rare claim Claim that says that uh, that her rights were violated because her employer uh, interfered with her political activity. This has been something that's been on the books in California for more than a century, but it actually hasn't been tested too much. Uh, we've seen it of late by some conservatives who suggest that their employer's interference in how they use social media to talk about political issues is, is some some sort of discrimination against them. And and is intolerable, but overall, it's a mistake to view this case kind of through the lens of past cases, because honestly, this is something that that Disney and Hollywood hasn't seen before. Uh, the second thing uh, which you brought up is is that Elon Musk is funding this. Not only is Elon Musk funding this, but she's backed by lawyers who are you know mainstays in the legal in the conservative legal establishment. They take a lot of cases that go up the appellate channel. So this is no ordinary case. This is not one that's probably going to sell. It's more a cause case, uh, a case that's meant to push the law to, to make a point. One could expect her to you know, be on Fox News during various developments throughout the case. I, I just think that this is a different beast than Disney is, is used to.
2: Well, Eric, I, I want to get into what it means to be a cause case and what that could mean for where we see this ultimately going. But is California the only state with this kind of law that says that Political speech is protected speech.
3: There are a couple of other states that have similar laws. You know, one thing that that always comes up is you know the First Amendment, and the First Amendment really prevents the government from doing anything that impinges people's speech. Uh, and usually, you know, when you know someone cries censorship, the point has to be made that you know private employers have the ability to impinge speech. All they want, but a few states, you know, including you know Connecticut and California and and a few others, go beyond the First Amendment and they and they regulate uh, what employers can do. And and so you know it's very obscure, but California is one of them, which basically says that employers can't like step in and interfere with with their employees' uh, political activities. And to some degree, it makes sense. You wouldn't want an employer exerting their you know economic power to say, you know, if you you know don't vote for a certain candidate, you're going to be fired. Uh, that that would be you know intolerable. So the question really is, you know, well, what does political activity uh, include does it include you know people you know getting on social media if so does it include them then doing stuff that that interferes with their job performance and and so forth but overall it's a it's a pretty interesting legal claim uh, I think that, that people have been missing that nuance
2: yeah this question of what political speech actually is is, is, is pretty interesting. I mean, just to spell out what Carano said, I mean, she said a few things that are, in my opinion, offensive, but not horrific in the scheme of things. Like, she's poking fun of people who list their pronouns in their bio. She compared the, the treatment of COVID mandates or Republicans to Nazi Germany or whatever. I mean, this is sort of standard-issue stupid stuff for lots of people, including lots of actors, where you could find analogs on the left. And in fact, and you mentioned this in some of your reporting, Pedro Pascal, the star of The Mandalorian, himself compared Trump to Nazis. So it's not like Gina Carano is sort of alone in voicing that kind of opinion. But it seems like it is, in this case, the valence of what she said. The fact that maybe she is a conservative or voicing opinions that are considered to be more conservative seems to have put her in a uh, disfavorable light with Disney, which, um, to your point, is under no sort of constitutional duty to employ her.
3: Yeah, I I think really Disney's reacting to the fact that she's injected herself into controversy. Conservatives might not like the fact that their ideology can become controversial, but when you're dealing with something like COVID mandates and lockdowns, I mean, this was, you know, the, you know, most controversial subject of the day. And so it colors people's perceptions of these actors. And I think Disney was reacting to that, really, and, and basically said, you know, we don't want to move forward with this off series. We don't really want to employ her because, you know, she's going to be a distraction and all that. And I guess the the case really boils down to, you know, whether or not it has a right to protect it, protect its image, whether it has a right uh, to, you know, basically dictate the, the show that it wants to project to audiences and to, you know, hire the spokespeople who are going to promote the series and, you know, they don't want someone who who's out there in front of the camera that colors people's perceptions of of what that show should be. And so th- ironically enough, although Karana and, and her supporters pre- present this as a free, free speech case. Really, uh, it's it's a case of her politics versus Disney's own free speech.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it, right? D- Disney um, can't have its speech compelled by employing her as a spokesperson, basically, either. And there's this also raises interesting questions of, like, how do you measure the rights to free speech against a morals clause that's in a contract. And, and who is the arbiter of what's in good taste and what crosses a line? I mean, I, I suppose that's why, in fact, the law typically does favor the rights of corporations to employ people at will, to fire them at will, with some pretty specific exceptions in states like California.
3: Yeah, I mean, the employment relationship is usually governed by the contract. And, you know, if if someone has a problem with how the contract is interpreted, they go to court and they challenge it. And then once the the court Getting grapples with it. The question is: Well, would a court enforcing a certain provision be flagrant under the Constitution? And so those are usually the dynamics that that take place. Uh, in this instance, we have the the wrinkle that really we're talking about a California labor law versus the the U.S. Constitution, and we have to figure out like how to f- fit that in in the rubric of, of stuff. You know, Disney will argue that it ha- has a right to. Cat- who who it wants. Gina Carano will argue that this isn't about casting, this is about regulating her behavior offsets. This is about, you know, what what she's tweeting about uh, when she's not in front of the camera and has nothing to do whatsoever with her her job as an actor. So it's it's a pretty interesting case and, you know, what's, you know, fascinating from from Disney's standpoint is that this case is going to probably linger and, you know, even if it gets dismissed uh, initially, it'll probably, you know, go up on appeal Um, it's well funded there are are, you know conservatives behind it who are watching it very closely Uh, the discovery could be a fascinating process where uh, you know where Gina Carano and others you know fight for you know Disney's discussions about how to treat her and Disney's discussions about how to treat other actors who who tweeted stuff Uh, so you know I I, I definitely think people shouldn't shrug this one off I, I think that that you know as I, you know, delved deeper and deeper into this, this controversy, I, you know, it appears to me to be something to, that can go places and should be uh, taken, you know, uh, seriously by by all. Yeah, Disney definitely seems to be
2: preparing for that potential uh, eventuality. They've, they've hired Dan Petricelli and Molly Lenz at O'Melveny. Those are two pretty high powered, very high priced attorneys. But yeah, Eric, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this works itself out. I mean, I guess it comes down to a question of whether Gina herself just wants to work again. Um, And, you know, one of the things that she asked for in this suit was to be re-employed on The Mandalorian. I don't think that's going to happen. But does she want to be a Hollywood actor, which presumably was her dream before all this happened? And she she ended up going off sort of into the wilderness to star in a film for the, the Daily Wire studio, which I think only a handful of people watched. It made like 15 grand at the box office. Does she want her career back or does she want to be a figurehead? For this movement right now you know you mentioned she's being used as a proxy for the likes of Elon Musk and other conservatives who want her to um, do, do the performance of a lifetime maybe all the way to the Supreme Court. but um, I have to wonder if that's what Carano herself actually wants.
3: I think what we've seen is that regardless of whether she wants to be a Hollywood actress, she will not sacrifice her her own political beliefs and she believes in it. And, you know, so she is going to be some sort of figurehead. Now, there are some conservatives in Hollywood that have made a good career out of it. Uh, Some, you know, even get cast because they are uh, conservatives. There are, you know, producers out there who, you know, have funded a, a certain segment of, of, of kind of conservative filmmaking. So, you know, I, I would expect that 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 she's going to continue being a, a Hollywood actor. The question is, you know, whether she's going to be hired by a, a big studio uh, in the future when, you know, this legal mess has, is going on. Uh, that I'd be a little bit doubtful about.
2: Yeah, that's that's a great point, Eric. There is life after cancellation for conservative stars, but um, maybe not at Disney. Got to leave it there. But Eric, thank you as always. This was fun. And uh, we'll have you back on next week. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance.